All right, welcome everyone. Um, this is Mike Stover. I am a partner here at the uh, Surety Law Group, Wright Constable and Skeen, and this is our 15th edition of Surety Today. I'm joined today by Jason Potter, who is our newest partner in the uh, Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable. Jason has been practicing for 10 years in the areas of uh, suretyship, construction, and commercial law. He's a Maryland super lawyer, and he was just named well, last week, I guess, or a week ago, to the uh, Board of Directors of the Surety Claims Institute. He's a graduate of the Ohio State University. Uh, as you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can dial in. If you miss a presentation, you can listen to a recording on our website at www.wcslaw.com or as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and we've issued uh, over 235 pins, and over 600 people have called in since we started last May of 2016. And we, of course, appreciate that support, and we ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. And as always, if you have any suggestions for a topic or for improvements, please let us know. And if you have any technical issues during the call, please contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. We've muted the line um, during the presentation, of course, to avoid the background noise. Um, at the end, we will unmute the line and open up for answers, uh, questions and answers, rather. Our topic today is the surety and arbitration. And I'm going to start us off with a discussion of arbitration generally. Jason will follow with a discussion of the majority and minority views around the country regarding whether the surety can be compelled to arbitrate. And next I'll talk about what to look for if the surety wants to try to avoid arbitration, some issues that can be raised there. Jason will then review the relevant issues concerning obtaining a stay of litigation against the surety pending the outcome of the arbitration. And then finally, I'll discuss the potential impact of not arbitrating. So uh, I'll jump right in here to with a with a general overview um, of arbitration. Arbitration, of course, is a form of alternative dispute resolution in which the parties contractually agree to submit their dispute to an arbitrator or panel of arbitrators for resolution. Because arbitration is consensual, dispute is a consen consensual dispute resolution method, the form of arbitration can be dictated by the parties. Many contracts specify the rules and procedures that have been developed by the American Arbitration Association, which I'll refer to as the AAA, and in particular the construction industry arbitration rules and mediation procedures. The AAA is a public service nonprofit organization that offers a range of dispute resolution services to many industries, including the construction industry. The format of an arbitration is more like a trial court proceeding, but depending on the rules adopted by the parties can be substantially less formal than a trial court proceeding, especially with respect to the application of the rules of evidence. In the early days, arbitration was disfavored by the courts and was viewed as an interference or infringement on the jurisdiction of the courts. However, in more modern times, the pendulum, so to speak, has swung to the opposite extreme, with courts sometimes stretching and straining to uphold arbitration agreements wherever possible, and even finding agreements where they don't really appear to exist. The majority of states have enacted some version of the Uniform Arbitration Act, 
the Uniform Act provides for, a, for the validity and enforceability of arbitration agreements and gives arbitrators the authority to issue subpoenas, compel witnesses to testify, and generally addresses issues such as um, the process for challenging whether an agreement to arbitrate exists, the appointment of arbitrators, hearings, awards, fees, vacating awards, etc. An arbitration award under the Uniform Act can only be vacated where the award was procured by corruption, fraud, or other undue means, where there was evident uh, partiality by an arbitrator or corruption or misconduct of the arbitrator, where the arbitrators exceeded their powers or authorities, or where the arbitrators unjustifiably refused to postpone a hearing or refused to hear evidence material to the controversy um, or otherwise conducted the hearing so as to substantially prejudice the rights of a party. In Rhode Island, the statute permitting arbitration expressly includes the surety in the arbitration if the claimant um, under a payment or performance bond is, party to a, is a party to a written contract with a provision for arbitration. Um, and in that statute, the arbitration will decide all controversies, including any liability of the surety under the bond. Conversely, in Georgia, the statute excludes from arbitration uh, contracts of insurance, and insurance is defined under Georgia code to include sureties, so therefore the argument can be made that the Georgia statute um, regarding arbitration excludes uh, compelling the sureties to arbitrate. Federal government, of course, has enacted the Federal Arbitration Act, or the other FAA. I'll refer to it as FAA here. The FAA applies to any written contract involving commerce in which the parties agree to arbitrate and provides that such agreements shall be valid, irrevocable, and enforceable. That's um, 9 U.S.C. Section 2. Commerce is defined broadly in the FAA to include all international or interstate commerce. The Supreme Court has held that when state law directly prohibits the arbitration of a claim otherwise subject to the FAA, the FAA preempts the conflicting state law. According to the AAA, in each of the last two years, there were over 8,300 commercial cases filed with the AAA for arbitration. The total amount of claims and counterclaims in each year was between 12 and 13 billion, with a B. The proponents of arbitration contend that arbitration is faster, cheaper, and more streamlined than litigation, and the case is decided by an arbitrator or a panel of arbitrators that is knowledgeable about the construction industry, as opposed to judges or juries who may have no knowledge or experience with the industry. For sureties, the negatives uh, relating to arbitration include the fact that the legal rules and defenses protecting sureties may be loosely applied and or ignored in an arbitration. The arbitrators are, are often perceived to allow personal concepts of fairness to override the facts in the law. The very limited appellate review, limited discovery and disclosure of defenses and claims, which can lead to last-minute surprises or ambushes at a hearing, and limited explanation of awards. So um, according to the federal court statistics uh, and, and information from the AAA, the median length of a jury trial in, from the case being filed to being ruled on uh, is 27.2 months. That's over two years. In comparison, the AAA contends that in construction cases in 2015, the median time from filing a case to award was 232 days or less than eight months. So they do have um, some claim to make that they're a little, little faster than litigation. 
And recently, the AAA has also introduced an optional appellate arbitration procedure, uh, I guess, to address, address that concern that people have that there's no uh, review of an arbitrator's decision. So under this procedure, the parties can agree in their contract up front or stipulate after the fact to, to, to submit to uh, to submit the arbitration award for review to a AAA arbitration panel. The parties or the AAA can appoint the appellate panel, and the appeal will be determined based on the record and the briefs submitted in accordance with, a briefs will be submitted in accordance with a schedule and page limits. Oral arguments are permitted, but only based upon request and at the discretion of the panel. After 30 days, the panel must either adopt the underlying award substitute its own award or request additional information in time to render a decision. The entire appeal process under the, the new appellate process for the AAA is designed to take less than three months. The administrative fee is $6,000 uh, for the filing, and if there's a, a cross appeal, it's another $6,000. And the appeal can be based on the grounds that the underlying award is based on an error of law that is material or prejudicial, or determinations of fact that are clearly erroneous. So the grounds for appeal under the new rules are much broader than the traditional grounds for a court to vacate an arbitration award. Okay, I'll turn it over to Jason. Um, thanks, Mike. Um, now, as Mike mentioned earlier, there's a um, somewhat of a split of authority as to whether and in an arbitration provision in a, in a bonded contract that is incorporated by reference into the bond is enforceable as to the surety and binds that surety to, to arbitrate. The majority view is that it is. So the majority of jurisdictions in the country hold that where the bond incorporates by reference a bonded contract that contains an arbitration provision, the surety is bound to arbitrate. The courts of appeal for the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 10th, and 11th have all, uh, have all joined in that majority uh, view. Put differently, the, the 8th, 9th, and the Federal Circuit have not. So courts in the majority view cite generally three rationales in support of their view that incorporation by reference is sufficient to bind the surety. The first rationale that they cite is a national policy that Mike mentioned uh, established by the Federal Arbitration Act. Congress enacted the Federal Arbitration Act to abolish the common law rule that arbitration agreements are not generally speaking enforceable, but it also enacted the Federal, and Arbitra Federal Arbitration Act to establish a strong national policy favoring arbitration. So courts in these majority view jurisdictions often point to the FAA's strong policy uh, of favoring arbitration to support their view that incorporation by reference of an arbitration provision into a bond is sufficient to bind the surety. The second rationale identified by this majority view um, is found in the language of the contracts themselves. Courts often point to the fact that contract language that requires arbitration is, generally speaking, very broad. The clauses often require that all claims arising out of or relating to the contract be subject to arbitration. And if, if these clauses do not identify the parties who are bound to arbitrate, courts in these majority jurisdictions uh, often 
hold that the surety must be bound to arbitrate. But if the arbitration provision is specifically limited to parties, to specifically named parties, then obviously courts are less likely to enforce that arbitration provision as to the surety. Finally, a third factor cited by courts in the majority is how they view sureties generally and what, what role they believe sureties should play. So in these jurisdictions, if a court views a surety uh, as one who guarantees to do what its principal has promised to do, then a court is more likely to bind the surety to arbitrate because these courts seem to believe that sureties should have the same rights, duties, and obligations as their bond principals. So the, the thinking goes that if the principal must arbitrate, then the surety should have to arbitrate too. Minority view obviously takes uh, a much different approach. Although the reasoning identified by these major, minority jurisdictions is much more fractious. However, the one thing that these minority jurisdictions hold in common is that in order to bind the surety to arbitrate, where there is an incorporation by reference, there must be some clear indication that the surety intended to bind itself to arbitration, and it has to be more than incorporating the bonded contract by reference. So, for example, in Maryland, where, where we're located, our highest court, which is called the Court of Appeals, um, has held that incorporating another contract is not clear enough to show that a surety intended to bind itself to arbitration. And I'll, I'll quote a, a little bit of, from the opinion. The, the incorporation of one contract into another contract involving different parties does not automatically transform the incorporated document into an agreement between parties to the second contract. So in other words, incorporation by reference is not enough to bind the surety. There has to be something else that shows the surety intended to bind itself to arbitration. Now in the Eighth Circuit and some other federal courts, they've reviewed the issue through the 1984 edition of the A312 performance bond. And they held that the language in the bond was too ambiguous because it referred both to arbitration and to litigation. And for them, it was not sufficiently clear that the surety intended to bind itself uh, to arbitration. So the takeaway here is that if you're in a majority, juris majority jurisdiction, the arbitration clause is more likely to be enforced if it is incorporated by reference into the bond and it's not limited to specific parties. In a minority jurisdiction, however, incorporation by reference into the bond is probably not enough. There has to be some other indication, whether in the bond or elsewhere, that the surety intended to bind itself to that arbitration. Mike? All right, thanks, Jason. Okay, so this next section I'm going to talk about, you know, the issues to consider if you don't want to arbitrate. So, so if you're in one of those jurisdictions that Jason was talking about that generally will compel the surety to arbitrate, but you don't want to arbitrate, there are some arguments to consider, and Jason mentioned some of them, uh, that might help in getting the surety out of the arbitration. First, consider the language of the bond itself. Uh, as noted earlier, one of the primary bases for compelling the surety to arbitrate is the fact that the bond incorporates the underlying contract by reference, and the underlying contract has an arbitration provision. In the case of Dunn Industrial Group versus City of Sugar Creek, um, 
112 Southwest 3rd, 421, Missouri, 2003. The court held that a guarantor on a construction contract performance guarantee. Now, this wasn't a bond case uh, technically, but this guarantee was a performance guarantee in a construction project. It was very similar to a bond. But then in that case, the, bond, um, the guarantor was not bound to arbitrate because the underlying clause uh, in the contract was only referenced in the guarantee as opposed to being incorporated into the guarantee. In Dunn, the underlying contract was attached to the guarantee. The guarantee even stated that the guarantor guaranteed prompt and satisfactory performance of the terms and conditions of the contract. But the court stated the mere reference to the construction contract in the guarantee is insufficient to establish that the guarantor bound itself to the arbitration provision of the construction contract. So that's the first place to look is what's the language of the bond and is there, is there any way to get around this? And I, I've seen some of these bonds, various bond forms out there that really only reference the contract. They don't say that it's incorporated herein by reference for all purposes and that kind of thing. So that might give you something. Second, uh, review the language of the arbitration provision itself. Uh, Jason noted this, but as, as noted earlier, the arbitration is consensual and contractual dispute uh, resolution process, and a party cannot be compelled to arbitrate unless it has agreed to do so. A corollary to that rule is that the scope of the arbitration will be governed by the language of that arbitration provision. And this, this uh, principle can manifest itself in a variety of ways. For example, the arbitration provision may state that it is only applicable to parties to the contract. As Jason said, it has a limitation that it's only uh, applicable to, to the, the two parties to the contract. If, if a provision is expressly limited to those parties, then an agreement, or rather an argument can be made that even if the underlying contract is incorporated into the bond, it is limited to just those parties. Another, another aspect, the arbitration provision may limit the scope of disputes uh, to, which it, to which it applies. In one case, the provision was limited to issues relating to the performance of the work. The surety argued that its dispute with the claimant related to surety defenses and not to the performance of the work. Specifically, the surety contended that the claimant did not comply with conditions precedent in the bond. The court held that the surety was not obligated to arbitrate those issues. Sometimes in the arbitration, uh, the provision in the contract may contain an exclusion for claims arising under federal law. For example, the AIA 1987 version of the standard agreement between a contractor and subcontractor at paragraph 6.5 provided that um, arbitration shall not be deemed a limitation of rights or remedies which the subcontractor may have under federal law. And a court in the Eastern District of Virginia addressed this contract provision and noted that since the Miller Act is federal law and the claimant was pursuing a Miller Act claim, the arbitration provision did not apply because the scope of the provision excluded federal law claims. So one must look at the terms of the arbitration provision in order to determine if there's any grounds to contest being compelled to arbitrate. Third, if the claim is on a Miller Act bond, some courts have held that such claims are not subject to arbitration because they are within the exclusive jurisdiction of the federal courts pursuant to the terms of the statute. In uh, Lee, Lee and Rua Company versus Great American Insurance Company, uh, it's a Westlaw case, 2008. The court observed that the Miller Act provides an exclusive federal cause of action, and the Miller Act also has a waiver provision which only permits waiver under three conditions. And in that case, the, the 
the arbitration provision did not meet those conditions. In other words, it, it treated the arbitration provision as an attempt to waive the rights under the Miller Act. And so since there wasn't a proper waiver, the court held that, um, that the arbitration clause did not apply. Fourth, you can uh, carefully review the terms of the underlying contract. As we noted, the underlying contract being incorporated is the basis for the, um, for the, for the uh, de decisions ordering or compelling a surety to arbitrate. But in some cases, the contract itself will say that it is not intended to create any kind of contractual relationship between any other parties other than those to the contract. And so the argument can be made that that provision basically nullifies any argument that there's an intent of the parties by incorporating the contract into the bond, that there's an intent of the parties to be bound to the arbitration provision. The contract is saying that it, it won't create that kind of agreement between any other parties. Fifth, um, you can look at the facts may indicate that there may be a waiver in the case. And I've got to say this is something that's very difficult to prove, but um, there, there is precedent out there for parties waiving their right to arbitrate. The best example would be where a party files suit and pursues litigation, or if they're sued, continues to pursue the litigation and doesn't raise arbitration. Um, other, other times you can find a waiver by excessive delay, or if a party um, actually waives the arbitration right in writing, uh, then, you, then you could argue a waiver. So, Jason? Okay. Um, so, if the, sh if the surety is sued separately from its bond principle at the same time that the bond principle is in arbitration, um, the surety may want to stay the litigation and potentially intervene into the arbitration or, or see how the arbitration plays out. So we thought we'd try to raise some arguments that the surety can, can address with the court to try to persuade the court to stay the litigation to allow the arbitration, however it's going to play out, to, to, to do so. So the surety may want to raise with the court the possibility that there may be inconsistent verdicts if the litigation and arbitration proceed on separate courses. Obviously, if, if there are um, many of the same claims being adjudicated in two different forums, uh, it could lead strongly uh, to the possibility of inconsistent uh, decisions in different forums. Secondly, if the surety litigates or is forced to litigate it against a claimant while arbitration is pending, uh, a decision in the litigation could decide issues that should more properly be decided in the arbitration. Um, and as I thought about it, this, it seemed to me that the most obvious example might be a, a payment bond claimant. Um, as between a surety and a principal, the principal is most often in a better position to determine whether a particular payment bond claim and actually perform the work on the project or was entitled to payment. The, the principal may have, you know, the, the uh, claimant's pay applications, may have reviewed the schedule of values. That principal uh, may have actually inspected the quality of the work by that claimant. So as between the principal and the, and the surety, the principal is, is usually in a much better position than the surety to determine how much, if anything, that, that claimant should, uh, should receive. And so, therefore, the surety can present to the court uh, with the option of staying the litigation to allow the principal, the party in a better position, to determine how much, if anything, that bond claimant should receive. A third um, 
argument to be raised with the, with the court is if the surety litigates against the claimant while the arbitration is pending, will that simultaneous adjudication frustrate the purpose of the arbitration in the first place? As Mike indicated um, at the beginning, arbitration was created because uh, Congress and others believed that it would be cheaper and faster. The statistics, at least from AAA, seem to bear that out, at least as to, uh, as to the length of time. However, if the same claim or substantially similar claims are being adjudicated in two different forum at the same time, it obviously undercuts the, the purpose of arbitration. Here are a couple of additional factors we've identified that, that a surety can use to try to convince a court to stay uh, litigation uh, pending arbitration. First, the, there is the first to file rule. The first-to-file rule generally favors pursuing only the first-filed action where multiple lawsuits involving the same claims are filed in different jurisdictions. A surety may argue that if there is arbitration already pending at the time the surety is sued, the surety may argue that the first-to-file rule supports staying that litigation in favor of the first-filed arbitration. Secondly, a surety may look to the Federal Arbitration Act in support of the stay. The Federal Arbitration Act expressly provides that where there is an agreement to arbitrate and one of the parties to the litigation seeks a stay pending arbitration, the court must stay the case pending arbitration. Third and finally, a surety may also seek the principal's assistance by having the principal intervene in the litigation in order, in order to join in a motion to stay the case pending arbitration. These are not obviously all the issues to consider or all, all the, the issues to be raised with the court, but we hope they provide some guidance and some new ideas in trying to convince the court to stay the, stay the litigation. All right, thanks, Jason. So the last topic uh, to talk about is the potential impact of refusing to arbitrate. So far we've been talking about how to avoid arbitration, but the surety must ask, ask itself, what happens if the surety does not arbitrate in the arbitration, or participate rather in the arbitration? The old, the old adage, beware of what you wish for because you might get it, could apply. Of course, if the surety does not participate in the arbitration and the principle prevails such that it is determined that the claimant's claim is invalid, then the surety should avoid any liability. General principles of surety law hold that the surety's liability is coextensive with that of its principle. As a consequence, if the, in the absence of liability on the part of the principal, the surety cannot be held liable. In this instance, the surety, of course, will look like a genius in deciding to oppose arbitration because it will have avoided the costs and fees of such a process. But what happens if the principal loses in the arbitration and cannot satisfy the arbitration award? There's a split in the jurisdictions as to the effect of an adverse arbitration ruling on the surety. In some jurisdictions, if the surety was aware of the arbitration and had an opportunity to participate in the arbitration, the surety will be held to be bound to the arbitration award. Some courts reach this result by concluding that the surety is in privity with the principal and thus, under the principal's race judicata or collateral estoppel, the surety can be bound by the award. Other, co other courts hold that because the surety was obligated to arbitrate, it is bound by the award even if it didn't participate. And the, uh, in the case of the United States, uh, Skip Kirchendorfer versus M.J. Kelly, uh, 995 F. 2nd, 656, 6th Circuit, 1993, the court uh, applied that principle to an arbitration award against the surety 
and held that the surety was liable because it had knowledge and was aware of the arbitration proceeding and didn't participate. It, it, it held that the surety um, was aware of it and had interests identical to those of the contractor and therefore was in privity with the contractor. If race judicata or collateral estoppel are the basis for holding the surety liable, if the surety can establish that it was not provided sufficient notice or did not have a full or fair opportunity to contest its liability, it may escape the preclusive effect of an arbitration award. Further, an arbitration award was not given preclusive effect against a surety where the award was essentially a default judgment and the surety did not have a chance to present its defenses in the arbitration proceeding. So that may be another avenue to attack um, a judgment coming at you from an arbitration award. A further challenge could be based on the lack of a record or proof of what issues were actually litigated in the arbitration. Uh, but those issues uh, would be important in order to refute a race judicata-based argument. Other courts hold that an arbitration award is determinative of the issue of the principal's liability to the claimant, but does not preclude the surety from subsequently raising surety defenses, such as failure to meet uh, notice requirements under the bond, failure to disclose material facts, impairment of security, overpayment, etc. Still other courts hold that an arbitration award is not absolutely binding on the surety, but establishes merely a rebuttable presumption of the principal's liability. In some jurisdictions, the issue is controlled by statute. For example, in California, the code provides that an arbitration award rendered against a principal alone shall not be or be deemed to be or be utilized as an award against his surety. California Civil Code, Section 2855. Similarly, in West Virginia, the code provides that uh, regardless of whether the surety had notice of the arbitration, no award in a proceeding to which the surety was not a party is binding on the surety. And notwithstanding such award, the surety shall be allowed to make any defense in any proceeding instituted against it as it could have made in an arbitration proceeding. That's West Virginia Code 40, Section 45-1-3. So that concludes uh, our presentation on arbitration. Hopefully we covered all the relevant issues, I think. So in closing, uh, just before we open up for any questions uh, that you might have, I uh, just want to let you know that the next Surety Today presentation will be on Monday, August 14th uh, at 12.30, of course. And our topic will be statutes of limitations. Uh, I've been working on a case for quite a while now where we've gotten over 100 bonds are involved. And, and as part of the process, we've had to determine the statute of limitations applicable to the bonds. Uh, these bonds are all over the country. So we've, you know, we've, we've had to look at a lot of different statutes and a lot of different issues have come up. So I want to talk uh, next month about statutes of limitations. There's a lot of issues there. Uh, usually we do a sort of a roundup of what events are coming up, but I think because it's summer, uh, there really aren't any surety events coming up in July that I'm aware of anyway. So let me uh, unmute the line here and see if we have any questions. Hi, this is uh, Larry Jortner from, from uh, CNA with uh, my gang here. Um, I had a question um, as to materials for, for uh, this. Are there any materials or PowerPoints that can be uh, gotten uh, from this presentation? Well, from the presentation, no. But we do have, uh, what we do typically, Larry, is we, we do a transcript of this. So there'll be a written version of this. Uh, it's not, it's 
It's not a word-for-word verbatim transcript, but it's pretty close. And we'll post that on our website under Surety Today, so you can see you can see that there. There are a number of articles that have been written in the past, and some of which you know we used as uh, as reference material for this. And we can certainly uh, we can certainly send that out to everybody with uh, you know by email. Uh, okay, that would be great. Thank yeah, you. We'll, we'll PDF those and send them out to everybody. Sounds great. Thanks. Anybody else? Other questions?